Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome everyone. And a great show coming up uh, today. We're going to talk about uh, Lion's Mane in uh, one of its uh, diverse manifestations. Uh, and I also want to invite you to uh, a special event that I will be um, sort of hosting tomorrow. Uh, and that will take place at, in, at McGill in the McIntyre Medical Building. And uh, it is a special public lecture in which Moderna's chief scientific officer, uh, Dr. Melissa Moore, will be visiting us here in Montreal and speaking about the development of the mRNA vaccine. Now, this event is open to all, and uh, it is presented in such a way that it will be understandable by everyone. And uh, we'll talk about the... Uh, pitfalls of vaccination and, of course, how the vaccine was uh, developed. So you're invited. It takes place at 7 o'clock tomorrow. That's June 5th. And it's in the uh, McIntyre building at McGill. That's the round building. Uh, and it's in the Howard Palmer Amphitheater. Howard Palmer Amphitheater. And I'll be there hosting. And I will also moderate a panel discussion after Dr. Moore speaks. So it should be a very interesting uh, event. Uh, so I also have another invitation for you, and uh, that is for tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And this is my regular once-a-month appearance at the um, Eleanor London Public Library in, uh, in Cote St. Luke. So uh, join me there, and uh, we'll talk about some interesting stuff. But the main focus will be on science and the law. And I will tell you some very interesting stories about uh, the role of uh, uh, science when it comes to the uh, courtroom. As usual, I got a couple of questions for you, plus one leftover from last week. What do cryptozoologists study? What do they study? All you have to do, if you have the answer, is give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your answer to 514-800. In addition to that leftover from last week, I also have a question for you that was uh, motivated by the race that is going on right now in Montreal, the Tour de Lille. Here we go. At the end of the 19th century, some doctors claimed that women should not ride a bicycle because they would be afflicted with a medical condition. What was that condition? So what was it that doctors were telling women that they should be wary of if they were going to ride a bicycle because they would start to suffer from this medical condition? And one more question for you guys. In the United Kingdom, some banks and mortgage companies have refused mortgage applications if a certain plant is found growing on the property that is to be purchased. What is that plant? So what plant growing on a, party, on a property 
would make it difficult to get a mortgage from a bank or from a mortgage company. So once more, if you know the answer, give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your questions, comments to 514-800. Okay, let me uh, talk a little bit here about Lion's Mane. Well, the reason that I'm interested in Lion's Mane is because, as you probably know, after because I've said so many times, uh, I'm a big Sherlock Holmes fan, and one of the uh, Sherlock Holmes stories is the uh, adventure of the Lion's Mane. And it's a very interesting story. But uh, Sherlock Holmes, and that is to say Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, didn't get something quite right. <clears throat> the sting of uh, a type of jellyfish, commonly known as the lion's mane jellyfish, is described by Sherlock Holmes in the story as being as dangerous to life as the bite of a cobra. Uh, that is just not the case. But it is uh, Holmes's belief uh, of the toxicity of this venom that leads him to conclude that what at first seemed to be a murder was actually death due to an encounter with this jellyfish. As a medical doctor, Conan Doyle should have known that while the tentacles of this creature can indeed deliver a very painful sting, they're not a murder weapon. But I, I give him a little bit of a leeway because it turns out that in the story, the victim had a pre-existing heart condition and that could have contributed to his death. You know, you get stung by one of these creatures, uh, you feel a lot of pain and... Uh, of course, uh, you know, that, that can uh, trigger problems, especially if you have a pre-existing uh, heart condition. Anyway, uh, this particular jellyfish, uh, which really does resemble the mane of a lion um, with its 1,200 or so tentacles, each of which can be several meters long, is a very impressive creature. I mean, these tentacles can be as long as 36 meters. That's the longest ever recorded. And that makes this jellyfish the largest animal in the world, at least in terms of length. And if you get slapped by one of these tentacles, you get a big, long red belt uh, due to the venom, which is a complex mixture of a number of chemicals, histamine, kinase, prostaglandins, tryptamines. Uh, so, although this particular jellyfish, lion's mane, is not a killer, uh, there are others uh, that that certainly can do you in. There's one known as the sea wasp, and uh, it can inject a neurotoxic venom. Uh, it's made up of a number of proteins, and that can kill an unfortunate swimmer in just a few minutes. Now, there's another type of lion's mane besides the jellyfish that I, I talked about. And that is a mushroom. And like the jellyfish, it bears a resemblance to, is resemblance to the mane of a lion and can be found in the uh, trunk of uh, trees growing there. It's an edible mushroom with a history of use in traditional Chinese medicine. And uh, it is said to counter symptoms of a deficiency of qi, the vital life force that flows through the body. That, of course, of course, is mythical. There's, there's no scientific evidence for it. Anyway, supposedly by restoring the flow of qi, the mushroom promotes good digestion, general vigor, and strength. Well, recently, lion's mane mushroom has become trendy, generally in the form of some sort of extract, 
with claims of various health benefits that include anti-cancer activity, better brain function, regeneration of nerves, improved immunity, reduced anxiety, better control of blood sugar, lowering cholesterol, quite a litany of claims, isn't it? Well, what would Sherlock Holmes say if he were asked about the possibility of lion's mane having such a diversity of medicinal effects? A good bet is that the detective, who habitually insisted on theories being based on facts instead of twisting facts to conform theories, would have simply asked, where is the evidence? In Victorian times, there would not have been any. But today, Holmes would be directed towards a number of research papers that have investigated the potential of this mushroom as a therapeutic agent. And there are some interesting studies out there, uh, admittedly. However, just about all of those studies about this particular mushroom, uh, lion's mane, have been carried out in the laboratory, in cell culture, or on animals. And various extracts have been shown to act as antibiotics, to inhibit cancer cell growth, reduce inflammation, regrowth, damage nerve cells. True. While intriguing, these studies were carried out in cell cultures and animals, and as we know, the human body is not a giant test tube, and neither are we 70 kilogram <laughs> rodents, right? Uh, the greatest potential for lion's mane, or at least for some of its components, seems to be in improving cognitive function. And here, there is at least one uh, trial with with humans it comes to us from japan and uh, it enlisted a number of seniors who had mild cognitive impairment and they were given supplements of uh, of this particular mushroom and after 16 weeks they actually showed some improvement however that improvement you know is judged by these tests and uh, you know written and um, and visual tests it's hard to know what the practical significance is. So, so far, I don't think we have sufficient evidence about lion's mane mushroom to recommend that it be taken as a regular supplement, especially since supplements are not properly regulated. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll so for a while we conducted experiments in an apartment by the river road and we found out that the two things we put Okay, I've got some correct answers and some wrong answers. A wrong answer about the plant uh, that is going to be a problem if you're trying to get a mortgage, if it's growing on your property. Uh, the wrong answer I had was cannabis. Uh, someone thought that uh, due to it being infected by some sort of mold, that this would be a problem. No, cannabis is not the right answer for that. And uh, the question about the bicycle, when I asked about uh, at the end of the 19th century, doctors claiming that women should not ride a bicycle because they would be afflicted with medical condition. Someone thought that it was because they might uh, rupture their hymen, although they weren't sure that was a medical condition. Uh, but anyway, in any case, that isn't the uh, correct answer. But there is a correct answer, and as usual, it comes from James, uh, about cryptozoologists. 
and they study imaginary creatures. That is exactly right, like the Loch Ness Monster, Champy in Lake Champlain. If any of you have ever seen Champy, let me know. Sasquatch or the abominable snowman and the study of such, uh, I think, mostly mythical creatures is known as cryptozoology. All right. So uh, the story about the bicycles. All right. Yes, I did get a correct answer. That condition was bicycle face. Overexertion, the upright position on, on the bicycle, the unconscious effort to maintain one's balance, and that supposedly produced a wearied and exhausted bicycle face, usually flushed but sometimes pale, often with lips more or less drawn, and the beginning of dark shadows under the eyes and always with an expression of weariness. Condition was characterized by a hard, clenched jaw and bulging eyes. At least that is how it was described by doctors in the late 1800s. One doctor argued that the particular difficulty of keeping a bicycle balanced caused it, but uh, you know, caused this condition. But the, uh, the accompanying overexertion also played a role. In the 1890s, in Europe and America, bicycles were seen by many as an instrument of feminism. They gave women a measure of increased mobility. And uh, this uh, didn't rub men always the right way because it meant that they had to redefine the Victorian ideas about femininity. And uh, nevertheless, women were eager to take up bicycle riding. And now bicycle riding also helped change uh, dress code in order to you know, uh, allow women to ride on uh, bicycles. And uh, uh, it's, it's really amazing that something as simple as riding a bicycle should have you know, elicited such concerns in the late 1800s. All right, so uh, let me give you another question since we have had a couple of correct ones. What medical procedure did Hippocrates theorize could prevent baldness? So what medical procedure did Hippocrates theorize could prevent baldness? Well, talking about the ancient Greeks, it was uh, the ancient Greek physician Dioscorides who in the first century AD suggested that walnuts have medicinal value. In his classic compendium of herbal substances, which was called De Materia Medica, Dioscorides described a number of benefits, including an effect on mental conditions. He was a proponent of the doctrine of signatures, which maintained that plants resembling various body parts were effective remedies for ailments of those parts. Walnuts look like brains, so they were a remedy for mental problems. The doctrine of signatures has no scientific merit. But sometimes a remedy may turn out to be correct, despite the rationale for it being wrong. Walnuts are one of the most extensively studied foods, the subject of hundreds of peer-reviewed publications. While most of these have looked at cardiovascular effects, noting benefits on blood cholesterol levels, a few have examined the effects of walnut consumption on mental function. In rats, feeding walnuts results in improved memory, 
learning skills, motor development, and reduced anxiety. <laughs> how do they study this in rats? Mice, they do this by seeing how they run in mazes and how quickly they learn to avoid obstacles. In people, data from the National Health and Nutrition Survey in the US suggests that walnut consumers have lower scores on tests for depression. And now we have a study that suggests eating walnuts can boost the mental health of university students. Obviously, that's something I'm interested in. There's no doubt that university can be stressful, especially around exam time. Australian researchers designed a study to investigate the effect of walnut consumption on mental health as evaluated by detailed questionnaires. An experimental group consumed two handfuls of walnuts every day, roughly 55 to 60 grams, while a control group ate no nuts. The students were evaluated at the beginning of a semester, then around exam time, and then again at the end of the semester. Depression, anxiety, and stress were at their highest level during exam week. Well, that's to be expected. In each case, though, students in the walnut group had lower scores. Similar benefits were seen in mood disturbance, anger, hostility, and confusion and bewilderment. Admittedly, the results are not stunning. But they're interesting because there's really no downside to eating walnuts, except, of course, calories. You have to watch those because two handfuls of walnuts contain about 400 of them. Now, why should walnuts have any effect on mental function at all? There are a couple of possibilities. They're rich in alpha-linolenic acid, and that's an omega-3 fatty acid. It's important for the proper formation and functioning of cell membranes. And then there are the polyphenols that can prevent damage to cell membranes by free radicals, those nasty species that are a byproduct of the use of oxygen by cells. Polyphenols are antioxidants and they counter what we call oxidative stress. A recent laboratory study has even shown that walnut extract may be able to dissolve beta amyloid. That's the protein that gums up communication between nerve cells. That's the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. And there's yet one more possible benefit of walnuts. There's an indication that eating them can increase the diversity of bacteria that populate our gut, particularly in favor of those that ferment fiber and produce butyrate, a chemical that plays a role in maintaining the health of the intestines. To top it all off, a couple of population studies have shown that nut consumers, although not specifically walnuts, live longer. Walnuts are not a superfood. There is no such thing, as I've said a million times. But snacking on walnuts? Yep. Well, you know what? At least uh, that science uh, is not nutty. So, uh, uh, you know, while one has to, you know, look at such studies and, and not go overboard in trying to interpret them, what we do know is then we look at... Uh, all of the studies that have been done on nuts, and indeed there have been a lot of these, uh, these studies, uh, of course, many of them funded by nut producers, especially the California almond industry, they seem to fund a large number of, of, of studies. Um, so, you know, that, that uh, we take that into account. Uh, not that necessarily because there's a vested interest in funding that you have to, to 
not believe the data. I mean, the data is the data, you know, never mind uh, who funded it. And, uh, you know, we take a look at all of these studies that are nuts, and the consensus is uh, that uh, there's very, very little risk in eating nuts, aside, again, as I said, the calories. And there's a great deal of potential benefit to be had. So it is better to snack on, you know, a bunch of, uh, of nuts uh, than to eat a donut. I think that just about goes without saying. All right. Anyway, you are listening to The Dr. Joe Show. You know, I was uh, mentioning uh, that I don't think there's such a thing as superfood. There are good diets, there are, are poor diets, but there's no single food that should be made into an angel or into a devil. So I get annoyed when I see hype about superfoods. And uh, yeah, there are foods that contain more nutrients per calorie than others, but no single food added to the diet will have any sort of dramatic impact. Yes, it is better to have blueberries and old brand for breakfast instead of a Danish, but that doesn't make blueberries a superfood. What prompts my, uh, you know, comments now is, uh, you know, when I came across that the walnut study that I talked about before, and also uh, I was recently asked by someone who had been told that tiger nuts can keep blood sugar under control. Well, the first thing to make clear is that no tigers have been emasculated to provide people with tiger nuts. These are actually little tubers of a plant, Cyperus esculentus, and it's about the size of a wrinkled uh, grape and grows in the ground like potatoes. Uh, the nuts have little stripes, hence the term tiger nuts. This plant was first cultivated in ancient Egypt and the tubers were used as food. They've only recently appeared in North America and have taken on this mantle of a superfood. Marketers are always looking for something novel that can be touted as having some sort of health benefit and have become very adept at implying that they have managed to pull a rabbit out of a hat. In the case of tiger nuts, the claims are seemingly endless. Diabetes, constipation, heart disease, asthma, Vaginal dryness, arthritis, menopausal symptoms, impotence, they all succumb to its magic. The tubers can even be soaked till soft and ground into a blender with water to make what they call tiger nut milk. So, is there anything magical about tiger nuts? No, but neither are they harmful. If you eat a handful, you'll get about five grams of fiber, which is good, and the fat is mostly monounsaturated oleic acid, which is also fine. The only nutrient present in any significant amount is vitamin E. Claims about reversing cell damage caused by cancer, restoring virility after prostate damage, and keeping the elderly from dementia and Alzheimer's by consuming tiger nuts, well, that's just not so. If snacking on a handful of these little tubers or drinking a glass of tiger nut milk appeals to you, go ahead. But don't expect either to put a tiger in your tank or to normalize elevated blood glucose, or to do anything else that seems to be magical. <clears throat> All right, so I, I kind of uh, 
you know, had my uh, criticism of the uh, walnut study and the tiger milk study. Uh, let me now switch to a, a question that someone texted in about another dietary supplement called AG1. The AG stands for all greens. And uh, I've had a lot of questions about this over the last week. In fact, I was even on with uh, Elias Mackles the other day to discuss this. And I suppose these questions have been triggered by the, the TikTokers because there's a lot of uh, TikToking back and forth there about this uh, dietary supplement, which is a, a green powder. Now, this is just one of many such green powders. They're all made by taking various fruits and vegetables, dehydrating them, grinding them up, in some cases adding some sort of vitamin. And the whole message is that uh, if you're not sure that you have a nutritious diet, then uh, mix a spoonful of this into a glass of water, drink that on a regular basis to kind of fill in your nutritional blanks. It doesn't sound unreasonable, but uh, in science, we don't go by whether so something sounds reasonable or not. We ask, where is the clinical data? Has anyone done any experiment with this particular product? Not about one of its components. Yes, of course, one can muster studies about vitamin C, vitamin E separately, or beta carotene separately. Uh, even about you know, some of the, the polyphenols that may be present. But the question is, what about a study that examined this particular stuff, AG1, or indeed any one of the other green powders, to see what effect it has on, uh, on health? And I can tell you that you will not find such a study uh, because there's no motivation for the companies to do such a study because the only thing that it could do would be to show that their product is not particularly effective. But by playing the game of looking at each individual ingredient and then finding some sort of study that has shown some benefit, um, and you just quote those studies and lead people down the garden path into thinking that your particular mixture that contains some of those components has some sort of, of, of benefit. Well, that is not, uh, not evidence. Now, I don't think that there's anything dangerous about any of these green powders, uh, but neither do I think that there's any tremendous benefit you to, to be had unless you have some truly, truly horrific kind of diet. But people who do have those horrific diets are generally not the people who would be buying these supplements uh, in any case. <clears throat> And always, always, it is important to remember, as you know, I do not fail to point out any time that we're talking about supplements, is that these are not regulated as drugs. They fall into a completely different category. They do not have to prove efficacy. Uh, so as long as it's a compendium of naturally occurring substances, you can just pile them into a bottle and sell them. And unless someone shows that they are somehow dangerous, you can keep the stuff uh, on the market. So uh, that's my story on, on AG1 and all of these other such uh, supplements. They're not going to harm you, but it is a very, very expensive way to get some uh, vitamins and minerals, which are much more readily available in the diet.
No, I think instead of all of this supplement stuff, uh, we should be telling people and urging them to eat more fruits and vegetables in their diet and uh, also whole grains. And never mind, you know, what you find on Instagram or, or on Facebook or these days on TikTok. Uh, in fact, uh, what is really, really popular on TikTok now is a substance called berberine. They actually are calling it nature's ozempic. But we should be getting our, our um, information about science from pop, proper peer-reviewed scientific literature, not from the social media. Uh, berberine is a natural occurring compound that's found in a variety of fruits. It's found in, in some uh, vegetables, uh, in some herbs like golden seal. And uh, there are studies that have looked at this particular compound. There are studies that have looked at everything. And, you know, as I keep telling you, uh, studies are coming at us fast and furious. More than five every single minute of every single day are, are, are published. And many of them are, are poor. Some are good. Mostly they are mediocre. But if you study anything, you will find some effects, both positive and, and, and negative. So in this particular case, they, they isolate berberin from some, some uh, herbs, study it uh, you know, in the laboratory, study it in animals, show that it might have some effect on, on reducing uh, uh, blood glucose, that it might have some effect on weight in some animal somewhere, or it may, uh, in the laboratory, trigger the release of leptin, which is one of the hormones that controls, you know, uh, appetite. Uh, but the the so-called evidence is all over the place, and there are no studies that clearly show that berberine can lead to weight loss. And to call it nature's ozempic. Well, that, of course, is just riding on the coattails of uh, ozempic, uh, semaglutide, which actually does have an effect on uh, blood glucose and on weight, and it is a prescription drug. And because it is a prescription drug, it has undergone proper studies because that's what is required before a prescription drug is put on the market. But calling berberine nature's ozempic uh, doesn't mean anything because they cannot back it up with uh, proper studies. You're listening to Dr. Joshua. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalite, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calciumate, soybean oil, butter fat, I'm still looking for the answer to my question about the medical procedure that Hippocrates theorized could prevent baldness. 514-790-800. You can call there or text to 514-800. Okay, once more, uh, my invitation for you guys for tomorrow. Uh, 2 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I'll be at the Eleanor London Public Library in Coates and Luke. And we are once again back to doing things live. And uh, it's always fun to do things live when you can actually see the audience and inter interact. And my topic tomorrow is going to be science and the law. 
talk about some interesting cases in the courtroom where science has played a role. So that's at two o'clock. And then at seven o'clock tomorrow night in the McIntyre Medical Building, the Palmer Theater, we're going to have a public lecture uh, from Professor Melissa Moore, who's the chief scientific officer at Moderna. And uh, Moderna, of course, is the uh, uh, company that gave us the uh, vaccine that kept so many people out of uh, hospital. We're going to hear the inside story of how this was developed and how it works. And it's rare that you can, you know, uh, attend a public lecture by someone who has been involved to so deeply with such an important, uh, with a substance that has become so important uh, in terms of its impact on, on society. And uh, after that talk, I will moderate a panel discussion. <clears throat> and we have some excellent uh, uh, panelists there as well, uh, including Professor Nahum Sonnenberg, uh, one of McGill's uh, best-known biochemists, uh, Professor Morag Park, Professor Thomas Duchenne, uh, Dr. Avak Kavijian, who's from Flagship Pioneer. Uh, they do a lot of work on mRNA. It's going to be really a fun discussion, and uh, it will be at a level that, of course, is designed to be uh, understandable by the public. So that's at 7 o'clock tomorrow in the McIntyre Medical Building, the uh, Howard Palmer Amphitheater, which is on the sixth floor. And uh, it is, of course, open to the public, and there is no charge for, for that. I did get a, an answer to uh, the question about Hippocrates, and indeed, he theorized that castration was the answer to baldness. He is thought to have said, eunuchs are not subject to gout, nor do they become bald. And he theorized that castration could prevent this age-related loss of hair. And there actually may be something to that because high levels of testosterone are indeed uh, linked to uh, baldness. On the other hand, I don't think that you would find very many men who would be willing to undergo uh, that particular uh, treatment. Okay, so we've had our questions answered, but... Uh, I give you another one. In 1899, what drug company published a small reference book for physicians and pharmacists that included bloodletting, arsenic, and almond bread amongst its treatment recommendations? So again, keep the date in mind, 1899. What drug company published a small reference book for physicians and pharmacists that included bloodletting, arsenic, and almond bread amongst its treatment recommendations. And uh, that drug company, of course, is still around today, uh, which is the reason that I'm asking that, uh, that particular uh, question. You know those little stickers that you see on fruits and, and some vegetables? Uh, gee, you know, it's, sometimes they, they are annoying, aren't they? But you know, the, the internet really is a double-edged sword. If that sword is wielded properly, it can cut out much online nonsense and serve up some very useful information. 
However, if used improperly, it can skewer sense. Let me give you a case in point. It's a scare that has been circulating about a novel product called Edipeel, made by Appeal Sciences, A-P-E-E-L, which is a California company. Now, Edipeel is a spray that can be applied to fruits and vegetables to form an edible, tasteless, protective coating that can serve as an alternative to plastic wraps. The coating can double or triple shelf life by preventing moisture loss and also forms a barrier against attack by insects or fungi. It's made from fats that are extracted from the peels, pulp, and stems of fruits, and also from some vegetables that are left over after processing into juice. Any product to which Eddie Peel has been applied will sport some sort of a sticker, and the sticker says Appeal, A-P-E-E-L. Some stickers only have the company's name and logo, other state plant-based protection for longer lasting produce. Well, some inquisitive soul decided to do a little Googling about appeal and dredged up the information that it can cause serious eye damage, allergic reactions, and damage to aquatic life. That sounds scary. It seems like another example of some nefarious food company caring only about the shelf life of its product instead of the life of the consumer. A post about this discovery and a warning to stay away from such toxic produce scooted around the internet. But our fearmonger had blundered when doing the Google search. The safety data sheet that was dug up was for a different product a cleaning agent produced by the Evans Vanadine company in the UK that was also called Appeal, A-P-E-E-L, because it was orange scented with the aroma coming from terpenes isolated from citrus peel. The terpenes also perform some cleaning function, but the main cleaning ingredients are various synthetic surfactants such as glycol ethers that do indeed warrant danger comments. All of this means that people are being scared away from a useful, safe product with false information. There are, however, questions that can be legitimately raised about Eddie Peel, mostly by people who wish to adhere to the organic philosophy. They may have concerns about solvents that may have been used to extract the fruit and vegetable fats, or wonder if all the peels and stems used to make the product originate from organic sources. Then there is the issue of possible nutrient loss because of longer storage times. And uh, there's also worry that greater transportability may make importing produce from China easier at the expense of locally grown fruits and vegetables. All in all, though, the use of Eddie Peel instead of a plastic wrap is quite appealing, while the scare created about it by a faulty internet search is, what can I say, appalling. But there are stickers on the on the vegetables that have been treated with Eddie Peel. And then people raise questions about those stickers, about what glue is used to put the sticker on there, warning you that a vegetable has this uh, layer of protection that has been sprayed on it. I think that layer of protection is is very interesting scientifically, and it does afford protection, and and you don't have to worry about the plastic wrap. Anyway, 
that is a wrap for us for today. We have run out of time. Uh, I'll see some of you at 2 o'clock tomorrow in the Eleanor London Public Library, and hopefully many of you at 7 o'clock in the McIntyre Building, Howard Palmer Theater. And for the rest of you, I'll see you here next week. Same time, same station. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.